Good morning, church. We'll be reading from Revelations 3, 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Heavenly Father, God, as we open your word this morning, we know, according to your word, that you are already here with us. So it does not require that we ask you to be here. But Lord, we also know that we can often get in the way. We can often hinder what you are trying to do, both in ourselves and in others. And God, I pray this morning that you would prepare our hearts and our minds, that we might receive your word. And Lord, that you would, in fact, move freely through this place. And God, I pray that most of all, your son would be lifted up, that we might stand on the promise of your word, that when he is lifted up, he will draw all unto himself. God, may you be glorified this morning. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the days leading up to the American Civil War, Anna Warner lived on what is known... Do I need to keep talking? Um, okay. Um, they always tell me I stop talking, and they're like, no, you need to keep talking so we can work this out. So she lived on Constitution Island, and Constitution Island was across the Hudson River from the United States Military Academy at West Point. Because of their proximity to West Point, of course, she and her sister and her family, they grew up always hearing about war, hearing about things that may happen. And of course, the fact that it was leading up to the days of the Civil War, she in fact did hear that often. In 1860, her sister, Susan, wrote a novel. She wrote a novel entitled Say and Seal. And it became the number one bestseller in the United States that year. Um, and it went all over the world, really. And in this novel, at one point, at the very beginning of the story, really, there's a young boy, his name is Johnny, and Johnny is sick, he is in extreme pain, and he is, in fact, dying. And his Sunday school teacher, Mr. Linden, comes to visit him, and when Mr. Linden comes to visit him, he is trying to give Johnny comfort trying to bring him peace and comfort in the midst of this difficulty. 
And Johnny looks at Mr. Linden and he says, would you please sing me a song or something? So Mr. Linden uh, began to recite a poem to bring him comfort in the midst of his terrible situation. The poem uh, in this book was actually written, so the book was written by Susan Warner, but the poem was written by Anna. She included her sister's poem in the book. And the story goes that Mr. Linden shared this poem song um, to Johnny, and it brought him comfort during the last moments of his suffering and difficulty. Now, Anna grew up in a world of uncertainty. She grew up in a time of turmoil during these years leading up to the Civil War. And yet, in the midst of these difficult and trying years, she held on to Jesus, and he held on to her. And what we will see from this passage this morning is this. That faithful disciples hold fast to Jesus and he holds fast to them. Faithful disciples hold fast to Jesus and he holds fast to them. Now, in this text this morning, we do in fact find that faithful disciples hold fast to Jesus. But the first thing we see, the first thing we learn or are at the very least reminded of is something that I would call a primary or central doctrine to Christianity, to our faith regarding Jesus Christ. Specifically, it is this, that faithful disciples recognize the exclusivity of Christ. Faithful disciples recognize the exclusivity of Christ. If you look at Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, as Brother Mike read just a moment ago, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And so, Jesus introduces himself to this church, the church at Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia is uh, Philadelphia and the church at Smyrna are the only two churches of these seven that Jesus has nothing to rebuke. He has nothing negative to say. And they're the only two churches that he doesn't use the phrase, but this one thing I have against you. He, this, they're the only ones that are not called to repent or to return. Now, Philadelphia, when we think of Philadelphia, we think of Benjamin Franklin. We think of the Liberty Bell. We think of maybe Rocky, whatever you, uh, or, or if you're just uh, did not eat breakfast this morning, maybe you're thinking about cheesesteaks right now. But the word Philadelphia is a Greek word, and it derived, our city of Philadelphia was in fact named uh, similarly after this city. It's an ancient city. It was founded about 140 B.C. And it was founded by Attalus, the king of Pergamum, which was another church that we looked at earlier. Uh, but he was the king of Pergamum in honor of his predecessor, King Eumenes II of Pergamum. Um, he was known to have a very strong love. He loved his brother, so much so that people gave him a nickname. They called him Philadelphia. And so they named the city Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. 
Uh, one thing that you will know, and it does matter in this in a moment, is that Philadelphia was uh, very rich in agriculture, very, uh, very rich in agriculture because it set right on a volcanic area. There was a lot of volcanic ash, and so uh, agriculture was very prominent there. But it also meant that there were a lot of earthquakes. In fact, the city of Philadelphia was destroyed repeatedly by earthquakes and the aftershocks thereof. And so Jesus comes to this church in this city of Philadelphia, and he says the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. So he describes himself in three different ways. He is the Holy One, he is the true one, and he is the one who has the key of of David. He is the Holy One. This is the essential attribute of God. Not that the other bad attributes aren't the same in the sense of equal. Uh, God is also love. God is also mercy. Uh, God is also all-powerful. We know all those things. But holiness seems, at least for God, to be so important that we understand. So important, in fact, that it is the one attribute that is repeated multiple times when it's repeated. Now, when the angels fly around the throne in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, they don't just say God is holy. And they don't just say He is holy, holy. They say He is holy, holy, holy. Which in Hebrew is like saying good, better, and best. If you repeat it three times, it's the best, it's the most, it's superlative. It means there is no other that is holier than the one you are ascribing holiness to. And so these angels call him holy, holy, holy. And Jesus reveals himself to be the holy one. But notice this, he does not say the words of one who is holy. He does not say... The words of a holy one. He says the words of the holy one. Uh, the, this is both a title for the Messiah, a title for God himself, but also when he says this, he says he is the holy one, which means there is not anyone else in all of existence who is holy the way God is holy. There is not one who is in, in existence, who is the same as God. In fact, God reveals himself repeatedly as, I am the Lord and there is no other. I am the Lord and there is no one besides me. So Jesus says, I am God. I am the Holy One. He alone is different. That's the first thing he tells us. He alone is different. But then he says, the Holy One the true one. The true one. Now, there are two words in Greek for true. One of these words means uh, not false. It's just the, the basic understanding of the word, not false. But this word, uh, this word is a different word, and it means one, or it means, uh, one that is or that which is genuine or authentic. So you say, well, they sound similar. Well, they are in one way, but in another way they're not. It's not just that he's not false. It's that when you see him, what you see is what you get. Everything about Jesus is completely and utterly trustworthy. So the thing he tells us, or he tells the church in Philadelphia, and the message he has for us this morning is, he alone is different, and he alone is trustworthy. When everything else falls apart, and every other human being you know, and every other system in existence falls apart, you can trust Jesus. You can trust him completely. And then the third thing he says is, who has the key of David. 
and has the key of David. Now, he alone is holy. He alone is trustworthy. But also, he alone is able to give access to God. So what does he mean by the key of David? I mean, does that have something to do with him being the Messiah and everything? Yes. But this is actually a reference to Isaiah chapter 22. In Isaiah chapter 22, because this, this is the where it's mentioned. In Isaiah 22, there is a man, during the reign of King Hezekiah, there is a man who is kind of like his chief of staff. His name was Shebna. And Shebna uh, was, well, he, he was just not a good person. And Shebna got involved in a scam where he was trying to uh, elevate himself and make money. And so God judges Shebna. He tells Shebna, you're going to be cast out. You're going to be thrown out and you're going to be replaced. You're going to be replaced by a man named Eliakim. And Eliakim was a just man, was a righteous man. You're going to be replaced by Eliakim. And I will give him a robe and I will do all these things. And then he says, and I will place upon his back or his shoulder the key of David. The key of David. Now, when they hear that, they, don't, they, they would have heard this and immediately they would not have gone, ooh, some mystical. They, they knew what the key of David meant. See, the, when we think key, we think the small things that we stick in a lock and, and turn. When they think key, you remember when they would lock the palace or they would lock the gates, it would be giant, like railroad tie type things that would fall down in these brackets to keep it from opening. So in order to open it, they had to have something that they could wedge in there to shift it up. It was a large lever type thing made out of wood. So this is why he doesn't say, and I will give him the key of David so that he can put it in his pocket. He says, I will give him the key of David so he can place it on his back. This is a large thing that he carries around. It's a, it's a lever that opens the door. Said, why is this important? Because when that was dropped, you couldn't just walk in to see the king anytime you wanted to. You couldn't just walk into the palace anytime you wanted to. You had to be let in, and in order to be let in, the only person that could let you in to see the king was the one who had the key of David. So Jesus declares himself to be the fulfillment of this prophecy because it was always considered to be a prophecy about the Messiah. In Isaiah, what Jesus is saying is this. I am the holy one. There is no one holy like I am holy. I am the true one. There is no one more trustworthy than I am. And then he says, and I'm the one, the only one who can give you access to the king. I'm the only one that can give you access to the kingdom and to the father. I am the only one who can do this. But then look what he says. He goes further. He says, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. That again is actually a direct quote from Isaiah 22. But he says, Jesus says this, I alone am in complete control of history. I alone am in complete control of access and non-access. I alone am the one who carries the key. Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. So Jesus declares himself to be the only one. This is what we mean by the exclusivity of Christ. He alone has access to the kingdom, to the Father, to salvation. He alone has complete authority. And what he does is complete. There is nothing that anyone can do to thwart the work of God. 
So, well, what about there may be people try to. There, we have an enemy who tries to, but in the end, make no mistake about it, God and Satan and God and this world are not on equal footing. Jesus is not on equal footing with the enemy. Jesus made the enemy, and Jesus is in complete control. So he says, look, I am the holy one. I am the true one. I'm the one with the keys, and when I open a door, no one will ever shut it. And when I shut a door, you better believe no one can open it. This is Jesus declaring his extreme authority over everything. Why is that so important? Because of the next phrase. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. So Jesus just said, hey, I'm the one with the keys, and I'm the one that can open doors no one can shut, and I'm the one, only one that can close doors that no one can open. And then he says, now, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I have put before you a door that cannot be shut. What is this open door? What is Jesus referring to? Is this the door of salvation? Yes, he just said he's the one with the keys. He's the one with the ability uh, to, to um, give people access to the Father. But it is also an open door to being able to share the gospel, to being those who are messengers of the gospel. So where do you get that? Well, Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, and 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. The Apostle Paul says repeatedly, pray that God would give me an open door to share the gospel. Pray that I might have an open door that I might declare the gospel to the nations. Over and over again, the ability to share the gospel with those around you is referred to in the New Testament as an open door. And Jesus says, hey, he's looking at this church, which we'll see in a minute, is a, is a small church. They have little power, but he looks at him. He says, now, guys, I know things are hard for you right now, but remember this. I am holy and there is no one like me. I am trustworthy and there is no one you can trust other than me. And I am telling you now, I'm the one with the keys and I can open the doors and no one can shut them and I can shut the doors and no one can open them. And now, guys, guess what? I have put an open door in front of you and no one can shut it. He's telling this church in Philadelphia that their gospel opportunity is something he set up. It's something that he gave access to. And he has laid the open door before them and no one can shut it in their face. So why is this important? Why, why, why would he tell them that they have an open door? Think about it this way, because sometimes we have to put it in our own perspective. We have an open door before us, Eastwood Baptist Church. We have an open door in front of us. We serve the only one who has access to the Father. And we serve the only one who is true. And we serve the only one who is holy. And he has given us this treasure, as the Apostle Paul says, in earthen vessels. He has given us the message of the gospel. And he has opened a door in front of us and said, walk through it. Go share. Go tell other people about it. I've opened a door. And no one can shut it. See, he alone can give eternal life, and we alone have the message of eternal life. And there is an open door before us. So the question this morning 
that should be on our minds when we read this is, where is my open door? Where is my open door? Um, where, where is your open door? Personally, where is our open door, Eastwood? Whether it's our community, it's people we know, it's people in our family, it's neighbors, it's people we work with, whoever it is, God has placed an open door before you. He has given you everything. He's given you the opportunity. He's given you the message. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you the power. He's given you the words. He's given you everything you need that pertains to life and godliness. He has given you everything. Then he opened the door and said, no one will shut it in your face. And the only thing that is incumbent upon us is to walk through that door and tell other people. So Jesus says, I exclusively, now I don't care what the world tells you. I don't care what you may hear other people say. I don't care what you may hear other preachers say. Big quotations. I don't care what you may hear anyone on television say. There is only one way to eternal life. And that's through Jesus Christ. And the church is the only one with that message. If we don't do it, who will? It is our calling, it is our command, and it is our joy to tell other people about the one who alone is holy, the one who alone is true, and the one who alone holds the keys of David. So, faithful disciples recognize the exclusivity of Christ. Secondly, faithful disciples remain faithful. They remain faithful. Look at these things he says about them. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. You have little power. The word in Greek here is the word we get micro from, like small, tiny. What he's saying is, you're a small church. Not necessarily, we don't know what the number would be, but he's just saying they're small. They're they're not powerful. There's not a lot of them. There's not a lot of influence that they have there in the culture. And so he says, you have little power, and yet you have kept my word. So they've held fast to what they know. They've held fast to the gospel. They've held fast to the truth of God's word. And then he says, and you have not denied my name. Which lets us know, even though he doesn't mention persecution in this text, lets us know that they were experiencing something that would have given them the opportunity to deny Christ's name. And yet they did not do it. So they are standing firm. Now what's important to note, it depends on what translation of the Bible you have, but the fact is, on my notes here, I'm using Greek, so I'll tell you that the, the actual phrase in the original language is, because you have little power, and you have, not, and you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name, I have put before you an open door. So what he's saying is not, hey, every church just has an open door. What he's saying is, faithful churches have an open door. That's what he tells them. Because they are faithful, because they keep his word, because they remain faithful to his name, he has opened a door before them. Eastwood family, we have to make certain we're faithful. We have to make certain we're depending on his power, not our own. See, they were a small church, so they had to be depending on his power. They had to be depending on his ability to strengthen them. We have to make certain we're depending on his power. We have to make certain that we are keeping his word, hear me, not just keeping his word by having an accurate faith statement, but keeping his word by living according to that faith statement. 
See, we can say all day long that we believe that the Bible is inerrant, infallible, and authoritative for all things. That it has our sole authority for faith and practice. But many times what we do is we declare the word of God to be our sole authority for faith, but then we declare our own opinions to be our sole authority for practice. We have to be the kind of people that say, I don't care how uncomfortable it makes me, and I don't care how uncomfortable it makes everyone else around me. I'm going to stand on the word of God. So we have to make certain we're keeping his word. That would mean in our actions. That would mean in the way we are organized and structured. That would mean in the way we do ministry. That would mean in the way we act with one another. That would mean in the way that we speak to one another. And they remained faithful and did not deny his name. So often, I mean, it's, it's crazy to be able to say this, but often you will hear preachers say, there may come a day when you have an opportunity to deny Christ's name. But the truth is, is that you and I have an opportunity to deny Christ's name every day. Every time we choose to sin and do our own desires over his own, we deny the name of Christ. We deny his person. We deny what he has done. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, when we do that, we trample the blood of Christ underfoot. We have to remain faithful because that's what faithful disciples do. And as we remain faithful and we serve him in our gospel call, we can also see that faithful disciples rest in his love and his coming. Rest in his love and his coming. In verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Let, let's just get this out there. He is not saying they're not ethnically Jews. This is a reference to like Romans 2, Romans 9. The, they are Jews ethnically. They are Jews religiously. But he's saying they're not real Jews because if they were real Jews, they'd believe in me. That's, that's what true Jews are, is those that both Gentiles who trust in Christ and Jews who trust in Christ, we have been grafted into the, the branch, the, 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 the root of Jesse. So we have been brought in. So he's not saying they're not ethnic Jews. What he's saying is, is they're acting like people who don't believe in me. They're doing things uh, as people who don't believe in me. Therefore, they are not actually Jews. They're liars. You say, well, does that make Jesus anti-Semitic? Well, considering Jesus was a Jew, it's kind of hard for him to be anti-Semitic. Jesus is just, I heard uh, Kevin DeYoung say this, Jesus was not anti-Semitic, he's just anti-sin. So he says, they lie. So behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. Now, again, say, okay. So these Jews who cause a problem, they're coming about him. Again, reference to Isaiah. This is part of the prophecy. He tells them that the Gentiles, the nations around them, will come and will fall at their feet. But when they fall at their feet, what they declare is, you alone serve the one true God. Tell us about this one true God. This is not an opportunity to put your boot on the back of their neck. This is an opportunity to lift them up with the gospel. So he says, in that moment, they will come to you. And then what? And they will learn that I have loved you. They will learn that I have loved you. 
See, the Jews believed that they were, just like the Apostle Paul, before he became, uh, came to faith in Christ, the Jews believed they were doing the right thing by persecuting Christians. They believed they were. They believed that they alone were loved by God and that these Gentiles who said they followed this Jesus, they were heretics and should be run off or killed. And what he says is, but in that moment, it will come a time where they will realize that you have worshipped the one true and living God and that I have loved you. Do you know that the greatest truth that I think you can ever truly come to understand is that Jesus loves you? You say, well, I know, but that's what we teach kids. Well, that's what we need to teach ourselves every day. It's what we need to teach ourselves every day. The root of the gospel is that God, Jesus glorified God through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And the second part is that he saved you because he loved you. He died on the cross because he loved you. Greater love has no one than this than they lay their life down for their friend. Jesus showed the greatest love. He showed his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not just enough to teach our children that in preschool and in kindergarten. We need to be talking about it in the senior adult ministry until the day we die. Jesus loves you. There are all kinds of things you can study in Scripture, but in the end, the one thing that overwhelms me more than anything is simply that I know who I am, and He knows who I am more than me, and He still loves me. He says, they'll know. They'll know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. So they're enduring through whatever it is. He doesn't mention the trial, but they're enduring through something. Sounds like it's coming from the Jews uh, of the synagogue of Satan. So, so they're, they're, they're experiencing some sort of difficulty or hardship. So he says, patient endurance. And I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. He says, I'm going to protect you from what's coming. I'm going to protect you from what's coming. And then he says, I am coming soon. I am coming soon, so hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. This does not mean that you can be a believer in Jesus Christ and then someone can come and take your salvation. This does not mean, hear me, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning other than the exclusivity of Christ, you need to remember that part. Um, but if you don't hear anything else I say to you this morning, maybe you just need to hear this. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, truly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing that you can do and there is nothing that anyone else can do. There is nothing that Satan can do to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. The Bible is clear about that. We could spend two hours walking through it, but the Bible is clear. So he says, hold fast. Hold fast. Why? Because he's been saying this over and over again, right? It's, it's those who persevere. It's those who hold on till the end. It, when they hold on to the end, those who conquer, as he'll say in a moment, those who conquer, they don't conquer in order to be saved. They conquer and overcome because they are saved. They hold fast because they're believers. So he says, hold fast. So that no one may seize 
your crown. While it may seem difficult now, we can rest in the truth that in the end, his love for you, his love for me, his love for his church will be apparent to all. And we can rest in that. But we must remain faithful. We must hold fast to the truth that we know because we do not want to lose our reward. That's what he means by our crown, our reward. In Revelation, we receive crowns, but in the end, what do we do? We take all of them and cast them at the feet of Jesus. We don't want to lose our reward. Why? Because you want to be able to throw something at the feet of Jesus. He says, hold fast. That you might not lose it. And as we rest in his amazing love for us and the amazing truth that he has done for us and the amazing things he has done for us and we rest in his coming, we can know that lastly from this text, faithful disciples reap glorious future promises. We reap glorious future promises. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he says, the one who conquers. This is the genuine believer. The one who remains faithful to the end. So the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of of my God. He will live in heaven forever. That's what he's telling us. You will live in heaven forever. You will have eternity with God. You will be like a pillar, immovable. You cannot be taken out. See, the, the people in Philadelphia would have understood this because the earthquakes destroyed that whole area, and even though it was rebuilt repeatedly, for whatever reason, Philadelphia experienced significant aftershocks that kept redestroying the city. And every time it would start to happen, the people would flee the city and run up into the mountains. So they never could quite stay where they belonged. They had to constantly flee. They had to constantly leave. And he's telling them, you hold fast. You overcome. And whenever you, come, whenever you get to heaven, I'm going to make you like a pillar in the temple. You will never have to leave again. You will be mine forever. You will be able to stay forever. This is what the Apostle Peter is talking about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. When he says, you and I, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and waiting in heaven for you. He says, you have an eternal life with God. You have eternal existence with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be like a pillar. You will never leave. He says, what, what does he say? You will be like a pillar... A pillar in the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it. You will always be in the presence of God. Always. And then he says this. And I will write on him. Now, this is important because um, it, he says, I will write on him. And then he tells them three things that he's going to write on us. Three things that he's going to write on us. I, I was, <laughs> Luann and I were driving down the road and um, there was a truck next to us. And I pulled up to the truck, and I just kind of laughed. And, and Luann was laughing, but apparently about something else. And I saw what was on the back of this truck. And, you know, obviously, a lot of times I see bumper stickers and things like that that I will, will not and cannot repeat here. But this particular one was on the back windshield of this guy's truck. And to me, it's massive, right? It's massive. And I pulled up, and I laughed, and no one else saw it at first. But all it says, in big letters across the back of this truck, it says, 
Judy's man. I don't know who Judy is, but she laid claim, right? There's not a human being in existence that doesn't know that the dude in that truck belongs to somebody, right? Why? Not only is her name on there, but her name's on his truck. That's his. And yet she said, no, it's not. This truck is mine, and the one in it is mine. And if anybody has any questions, look at the back of the truck. Why? Because she put her name on it. And Jesus says here, I will write on him. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he will write on you the name of my God, the name of his God. That's certainty of ownership. Who owns you? God owns you. Why? Because his name is on you for eternity. Then he says, and I'll na- I write on him the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Not only does he give you certainty of ownership, he gives you certainty of citizenship. If anybody wondered where you belong, you belong right there. And then he says, and I'll write on him my own new name. You remember in Philippians chapter 2? Because Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. Because of that, God has given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's the name? It might be Lord. It might be something else. But whatever it is, it's the new name. And Jesus says, I'm putting my name on you too. Not only will you have certainty of ownership. Not only will you have certainty of citizenship. But you will have certainty of ownership and intimacy with Jesus forever. He says, I'm going to put my name on you. Now, say, why is this important? They're, They're a small church. They have little power. He says that. And yet, listen to what he says. I'm going to read it again, but I'm going to emphasize something. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, or the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Jesus says, mine, 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 mine. If you ever wonder if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you ever wonder if you can be let go, if you, can ever, if you ever wonder if you could fade away, if you ever wonder if you could lose track or he could lose track of you, if you ever say, why has God forgotten me? Jesus himself says, when you get to heaven, let me show you what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you at least six times, you are mine. So in this story, say and seal, this young boy, Johnny, he's, he's in pain, he's struggling, and he's suffering unimaginably. And of course, Susan... Warner put her sister's poem in the story. And Mr. Linden sort of recites this poem. And what's interesting is Susan Warner's book, Say and Seal, was the number one bestseller in the United States that year. And yet, you have probably never heard of it. But you have most certainly heard her sister's poem. I promise you, you have heard her sister's poem. Because it is one of the most recognizable hymns in all of history. The poem that Mr. Linden recited to young Johnny in this book. He looked him in the eye and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. 
Jesus loves me. He who died, heaven's gates to open wide because he will wash away my sin and let his little child come in. Jesus loves me and he loves me still, though I am weak and very ill. From his shining throne on high, he comes to watch me where I lie. Jesus loves me and he will stay close beside me all the way. Thou hast bled and died for me. I will henceforth live for thee. Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. For the Bible tells me so. He says, you hold fast. Remain faithful. Don't deny my name. I have opened a door in front of you to share the gospel. I have given you everything. I am the holy one. I am the true one. I am the one with the keys of David. I am the one with access to God the Father. I have given you all those things. And he says, one day, they may ridicule you now, but one day they will know that I have loved you. Believer, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you, and he has placed an open door before you. He has placed an open door before me. He has placed an open door before Eastwood Baptist Church. Will we walk through it? Will we tell other people about this amazing love that Jesus has for them? Are we going to invite them to church? Are we going to bring them to a place where they can know and experience the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you reaching out? And holding fast. Where is your open door? This morning. And if you're not a believer. As I quoted earlier. God showed his own love for you. In that while you were still a sinner. Jesus died for you. You can come to him. And he welcomes you with open arms. If you will turn away from your sin. And put your faith in Jesus. You too can cry out. Just as Anna Warner wrote in that poem, just as Mr. Linden told little Johnny right before he died, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Because the Bible tells me so.